Sanctuary family, help me welcome all of our guests. Any guests that are here, this is your first time or second time, we welcome you in Jesus' name. We're so delighted that you're here worshiping with us, or if you're joining us online for the first time, or if you're catching up later on the YouTube channel, uh, thank you for watching and, and thank you for being here. We pray that God blesses you. You can be seated. We are in our midweek series, our summer road trip series. How many have been enjoying these road trip lessons as we take a road trip through the Bible? It's been uh, quite the journey. We are taking a road trip through the minor prophets. So the minor prophets are the last number of prophets in the back of the Old Testament. So at the end of your Old Testament in the Bible, there's these group of books, this collection of writings that are called the minor prophets. Uh, and they're minor prophets because they're, they're shorter books. They're not minor because these guys are less important. Uh, they're not minor because these are shorter men that wrote the books. Uh, they're minor because they're just smaller books. They're smaller prophecies. And so there's some incredible truths in these minor prophets that we can apply to our lives today. So tonight we are on lesson five, if my memory serves correctly. On lesson five, and we are covering the prophet Jonah, the book of Jonah. And Jonah covers the topic of the mercy of God. Now, there's a lot of judgment. There's a, there's a cycle of judgment and mercy throughout the minor prophets. But in particular, the book of Jonah highlights the mercy of God, God's mercy and God's compassion to anyone who is willing to repent. Now, some people would understand the mercy of God that it is just to anyone, period. And it is to anyone, but the sentence doesn't stop with anyone. It's to anyone who repents. It's to anyone who activates the mercy of God. And you activate the mercy of God by asking for it through repentance. That's highlighted in the book of Jonah. So if you want to turn to the book of Jonah in your Bible, uh, we're going to go through several verses here tonight, and you're welcome to just follow along or however you take notes. Uh, the book of Jonah is towards the end of your Old Testament, towards the middle of your Bible. Um, it's on page 598 of my, my, my Bible. I don't know if that helps you at all. Probably not. But there it is, the book of Jonah. Now, some suggest that uh, Jonah is written by an unknown author, and maybe they picked the most obscure prophet around that time in the Old Testament to attribute it to, and that the story is told in parable uh, form. But we believe that Jonah is the author. I believe that Jonah is the author of the book bearing his name. It's largely a biography. It's largely a, a part of Jonah's story. And What's interesting is apart from his prayer in chapter 2, only one sentence can, in the strictest interpretive form, be attributed to what would be called prophetic discourse, and that's in chapter 3, verse 4. And so the rest is, it varies in its style and its approach of writing from the other minor prophets in that it is a biography. It's, it's a story of his life. It's a story of a portion of his ministry. Now, uh, Jonah is, is critically challenged probably more than any other of the minor prophets and maybe more than any other book in the Bible. It's taken its fair share of criticism from uh, the academic community and others, and it, 
takes this, this short book that is uh, just simply four short chapters. In fact, in my Bible, it, you don't even have to turn the page to read the whole book of Jonah. It's this chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. It's all right there. It's a short, it's a short book of the Bible, only four chapters. But it's taken so much criticism, and the criticism has come because of the central story that is in Jonah. How many know what that story is? What is it? Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the great fish, or for all my fellow fishermen, Jonah and the largemouth bass. <laughs> it's because this concept of Jonah, this man being swallowed by a fish, is just, man, people scratch their head, and I'm not sure about all of that. However, we believe that the Bible is true, and we believe all the Bible is true. Even uh, ancient Jews and even modern Jews to this day would still consider it true and important as they include this story, this event in their celebration of the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And, and so uh, furthermore, Jesus addressed this in, in the book of Matthew. It's referred to by Jesus. Uh, what some would say is just a, a great big fish story, if you will, actually proved to be a sermon illustration for Jesus himself. When he was teaching and preaching, he used the story of Jonah to prove that he was going to be three days and nights in the tomb, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish. In Matthew 12 and verse 40, he said, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the whale's belly, so the Son of Man shall be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12 and 40. So we understand that Jesus calls out Jonah's story and says, hey, he was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And so if he was there, you need to know I'm going to be in the grave. So really, you could argue very directly from Jesus' presentation of Jonah's story that if you don't believe Jonah was in the belly of the fish like that, then it'd be difficult to believe that Jesus was in the grave like that. I believe Jesus was in the grave and rose victorious, and I believe that Jonah was in the belly of the whale, just like the Bible says it was. Clearly, Jesus believed the story, and if Jesus believed it, I think you and I ought to believe the story too. Uh, now, Jonah, whose name means dove, is this historical figure uh, the son of Amittai, uh, who prophesied during uh, prophesied to Jeroboam, and and the he prophesied the restoration of Israel. He prophesied that Israel was going to be restored to its natural ancient boundaries, to its original excuse me ancient boundaries. Now the date there's there's some span that we believe it could have been written uh, that would range from the 700s to the uh, to the 800s BC. And it's, it's, during the, it's during the time of the kings, and it's during the time of the prophets, and it's during the time, most importantly for his story, that Israel and Assyria are mortal enemies. So the setting of the, the book of Jonah is that Israel and Assyria are complete, absolute enemies. And what's important about that is Assyria was the country that Jonah was called to go preach to. He was called to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the nation of Assyria. And so that is the setting of this, this book that bears his name, the book of Jonah. Now, as we start into chapter 1, 
chapter 1, Jonah is given this great commission to go preach to, as I said, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. The word of the Lord, verse 1 says, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, verse 2, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Interesting to note that these two verses are an echo of Matthew 28, 18, and 19, where Jesus said, go and preach, and, and the Lord says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach. The recipe for people being saved is still the same from Old Testament to New Testament church, that there has to be somebody willing to get up, go, and take the message to somebody that hasn't heard the message. Whether that somebody's in your neighborhood or that somebody's on your job or at your school or in your family, you got to go and give them the message. Now, Nineveh is mentioned for the first time in the Bible all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 10. It's this ancient capital of the Assyrian empire on the banks of the Tigris River. And this place, according to the Bible in Jonah's time, was a place that had a population, the Bible says, of about... 120,000 children. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But the walls around the city in ancient writings are said to have been 100 feet high, and they were said to be wide enough for three chariots to race beside one another across them. And I read one writing that said, well, but the chariots weren't very wide, so they really weren't. And that's like saying, you know, God parted the waters of the Red Sea, but the ground was still a little damp. I mean, there's always, I mean, really? I mean, if you want to be the consistent pessimist, you can, but uh, whether the chariots were three wide and they were this thin of chariots, that's still a big wall to be built in ancient time. Or if they're the, as wide as your Buick, uh, that's really a big wall to be built in ancient time. And so this city was protected by these walls that were around the city. Now, God tells Jonah at the very beginning of the book, he says, I want you to go to Tarshish, verse 3. Uh, I want you to go to Tarshish. But Jonah arose in verse 3, and he said, he, the Bible says he went, instead of going to Tarshish, he went from the presence of the Lord. He went from away from what God was telling him to do. I want you to look at this, this image of Jonah's travel. God said go to Nineveh, but Jonah goes to Tarshish. He boards a boat and he goes the opposite direction. He could have went approximately 550 miles, but instead he sets out for what's going to be 2,500 miles as far as he can run from the way and the will of God. A couple of things we need to know about this. When you're in rebellion or sin, it will always take you further than you could ever imagine. And no matter how far you try to run from God, God always knows how to orchestrate a set of circumstances to get your attention no matter how far you think you've gone. The reality is the way of God may seem daunting, and the way of God may seem unpredictable. Sometimes God calls us to step out in faith in things that we don't know how they're going to turn out. But the way of God is always 
better. The way of God is always right. The way of God will always bring you out on top. The way of God is always the better option. So verse 4 says that Jonah, uh, was God sent a great wind against the sea and here he's in this boat that he gets in and he goes the opposite direction and, and God lets this great wind come up and this mighty tempest on the sea and, and everybody starts getting afraid because they're in this ship that is about to be broken up. Now, let's talk about this a little more for a, a minute. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Now, anything you read or study uh, they're going to, any commentators, biblical scholars are going to give you the same basic two answers as why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Number one, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid. He was a chicken. He was a scaredy cat because these Ninevites were, they were evil people. They were wicked people. If I'm just to give you a few of the PG rated ways that they welcomed their guests, uh, just a few that I can tell you and feel comfortable telling you from the mic and the platform and the pulpit, uh, they would, the, the Ninevites had leaders that would engrave on their, uh, they would grave on their monuments how they welcomed their guests. And these were some of the engravings that historians have found. One leader wrote, many within the border of my own land have I filleted. In other words, like you fillet a fish. <laughs> And spread their skins upon the walls of the city. Another ruler of Nineveh in ancient time wrote, I cut off the limbs of the officers and every royal officer who rebelled in my court. The one leader of Nineveh wrote that he burned 3,000 people with fire in one day. Another leader wrote, I cut off their hands, their fingers, some I cut off their noses, their ears, and I used their own fingers to put out their eyes. These were wicked people. Now, Jonah might have had a right to be afraid. But you should never be so fearful you don't do the will of God. Jonah was fearful. That was his first reason. The second reason that scholars would agree that he didn't go to Nineveh was misguided loyalty. Now, Jonah... He was politically and nationally loyal as a citizen of Israel, as an Israelite. He was loyal to his people. Now, probably you could argue that he would have gone to the city had he known that God was really going to destroy the city. And he really believed that God was going to destroy the city because that's really, we find out in chapter 4, that's really what he wanted. But Jonah despised those people. He despised their lifestyles. He despised their way of life. He despised the culture and the sin that they flaunted and that they promoted. He couldn't stand those people, the Assyrians, the Ninevites. And so Jonah was loyal. He was a patriot. He was loyal to the nation of Israel. But the problem was his loyalty was misguided because as a child of God, my loyalty to the kingdom of God should supersede any other loyalty in my life. My loyalty to the kingdom, well, 
I'm just going to get out there for a second tonight, okay? My loyalty to the kingdom of God should supersede the loyalty that I have to a nation, should supersede the loyalty that I have to people with the same skin color, should supersede the loyalty that I have to my same language group or my same neighborhood or same socioeconomic uh, demographic. My loyalty to the kingdom of God should supersede every single other loyalty in my life. It doesn't mean I can't have loyalty. Yo, we just celebrated Fourth of July. I'm proud to be an American. I'm not ashamed to say that. I fly the flag. I'm thankful I live in this country. I've traveled to a lot of other places. I'm glad I live in the United States of America. Nothing against anywhere else. I'm glad I live here. But brothers and sisters, I am a child of God first. I'm an American citizen second. I'm a kingdom citizen first. I'm an American citizen second. Jonah mixed that up. Jonah messed that up. And so scholars would agree that it was fear and it was misguided loyalty that caused him to run the other direction. And so the Bible says, but God did. God responded. But God, verse 4 and verse 3, but God sent this great wind. It's funny. Jonah, it says, after he was given the command to go to Nineveh, it says, but Jonah, and he did. And whenever there's a but Jonah, there's going to be a but God. Whenever you take an action, there's going to be a but God. Now, you're going to determine whether God's going to send blessing or God's going to send a storm. It could have just as easily said, but Jonah got up and went as fast as he could to Nineveh. But it didn't. It says, but Jonah got on his ship and went to Tarshish. And so the very next verse, it says, but God sends this great wind. You better make sure your actions are right so the but God in your life is something that you're welcoming as a blessing. Hello? And not a curse. He gets in this storm with this boat full of people and, and, and here's what this teaches us that my sin affects more than just the sinner. The sin always affects more than just the sinner. It's not just you. It's not just this idea that floats in culture today. It's my life. I'll live it how I want to live it. Bless God. We don't live in silos. We don't live in isolation. Your life affects people. My life affects people. Your decisions impact people. Well, if the curse of God falls on your life, it's going to hurt more people than just you. But guess what? The opposite is true too. If you do it the right way and the blessing of God falls in your life, guess what? It's going to bless more people than just you. There's this mad, bad storm that arises because of Jonah's sin and his sinful decisions. Hey, our decisions create storms or our decisions create blessings. Our decisions create wind and waves or they create calm seas. Sin is self-centered. Sin is self-serving. Sin is self-righteous. Sin is self-promoting. Sin is just downright selfish. The storm was bad. If you ever watched the Jonah movie by the reputable Hollywood team called Veggie Tales. Uh, <laughs> 
the VeggieTales version, I have too, Mark. The VeggieTales version says, if storm was bad. Someone up there was really upset with someone down there. <laughs> There's this storm. And in the storm, the unbelievers cry out, verse 6, for the preacher to wake up and start praying that his God would spare them. What a shame that the sinner has to wake up the preacher. <laughs> what a shame that the sinner has to wake up the saint and say, hey, I need you to help me. What a shame that they had to call the saint to repentance. Some, some folks are completely oblivious to the chaos that they cause around them. Well, that's good whether you said amen or not. <laughs> Some folks create a storm and then go to sleep in it while everybody around them suffers. Don't be like Jonah. They create a storm and then they just ignore it and let everybody else suffer. They had to wake him up. In verse 7 and 8, the sailors persuade him that uh, they persuade one another. There must be this culprit on board the, the ship. And so they cast lots and they, they draw straws essentially. And the lot falls on Jonah and they, they start questioning him. They start interrogating him. Who are you and where are you from? What country are you from? And what's your occupation? What do you do for a living? They start trying to figure out why they're having this storm because of Jonah. And, and finally, he completely confesses. He says, I'm running from the presence of the Lord. Verse 9 and 10, he starts telling the heathen about his Lord. He starts preaching to them a little bit. Verse number 12, we get to down just a little bit later, and they say, and, and here's what he says. This has always intrigued me. Think about this. After he tells them about his God and how powerful he is, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Y'all, sometimes I wonder how bright this guy was. <laughs> he, why didn't he just fall down and repent right then? Have you ever wondered that? Okay, I'm the only one. <laughs> Have, think about it. Instead of saying, just throw me overboard, no way. I don't want to go in the ocean. <laughs> I don't, I'd, I'd fall down and repent right then. But he doesn't fall down and repent. He says, ah, just throw me over. It didn't have to get worse is what I believe. God responded when he repented, right? So what if he would have repented still on the ship? God responds when you repent. You know what that tells me? Some folks would rather die than repent. <laughs> well... Some, folk, <laughs> some folks would rather die than humble themselves. Put me in the pain, but I'm not going to humble myself. Whew. Don't be like that. Now, what's crazy in verse 14 is these guys are concerned about having the blood of one man on their hands. If they throw him overboard, verse 14, they're worried about having the, the sin or, or the, the sin of the blood of this one man's hand. A head on their hands, excuse me. But Jonah didn't care about the blood of hundreds of thousands on his hands. God forbid, don't let us ever come to a place where we are so willful and disobedient and self-willed 
that the heathen have more an awareness of the things of God than the child of God does. They're worried about his blood. He's not worried about the Ninevites' blood. They throw him overboard in verse 15, and the sea ceases to rage, and it calms down in verse 16. The response of these pagan heathen sailors is they fear God, they sacrifice, they make vows. You know what that tells me? That you may walk down a path of self-destruction and you may take some folks out with you. But in the end, somehow, God will use your story to reach somebody. Somehow, God's going to get glory. Now, verse 17, the Lord prepares a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, some have questioned this account, but historically, there are multiple accounts of men being swallowed by great fish. In uh, 1880, uh, there was a case of a man being swallowed by a sperm whale. And, and, and in fact, in, in 1880, excuse me, in that year, for whatever reason, there were three cases of people being swallowed by these whales, whatever it was. One of them was a man by the name of Marshall Jenkins. He was an American. He was harpooning from a whaling boat, and he was swallowed by the whale. They followed the whale, and after many hours when the whale surfaced, he vomited, the whale vomited the man up in the, in the, while he was struggling, the whale was still fighting for his life. He vomited the man up. A man named James Bartley, a, a, a British man who was on a whaling ship called the Star of the East, was also swallowed in front of witnesses while harpooning. The, the whale was captured and cut up. They finally killed the whale. Hours later, drug it to land, and Bartley was found unconscious but alive in the air pocket in the whale's Stomach. There was an Arab man that was swallowed in the Gulf of uh, Abika in the Middle East. In, according to witnesses, he escaped by cutting his way out with a large jackknife or a large pocket knife, a folding type knife that he had attached to his side. <laughs> I can think of better days. <laughs> so it is possible it's happened historically, and we believe the word of God. Now think of this. Jonah starts off. Chapter 1 of the book bearing his name, leaving Joppa, heading for Tarshish. At the end of chapter 1, he's checking into the fish motel for three nights and days. Not exactly a banner day in anybody's life, right? But aren't you glad the story's not over yet? And what we should know is no matter where your life choices have taken you, or where you're living right now tonight, if there's still breath in your body, your story's not over either. Jonah, we look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 is only 10 verses, and, and chapter 2 focuses on Jonah praying. And we look at what's happening inside the whale. Jonah, we get this picture of what's happening inside the whale. Jonah is in the whale, but we should not forget what is happening inside of Jonah, inside the whale. Because what's happened inside of Jonah is really what this chapter is about. Chapter 2 records the prayer and the praise of Jonah as he is in the belly of that fish for three days and nights. It gives us a pretty clear picture of how Jonah felt when he was in there. It gives us an insight to the struggle that Jonah had with his stinking pride. Tells us He tells us in his prayer 
what his problem was. And as we read his prayer, we discover uh, this great miracle that though Jonah has been brought to the very depths of misery, that it was in the depths of misery that he finds the mercy of God. Sometimes you can find God in misery. You can find God in misery if you look for it. Now, he discovered that though he had forsaken God, God had not forsaken and left him. And verse 1 starts out with, lets us know that he prayed unto the Lord his God. This expression shows us the faith that he still had in God. He had run the other way, but he still had a faith in God. Oh, I thank God for everyone that has ever walked away from God but come home. Because though they walked away, they still had a faith in God. They never forgot what they were taught. They never forgot what they learned. But, but check this out. Listen to Jonah's language in, in chapter 2, just skipping around, starting with verse 4. He said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I'll look again. Verse 5, he says, the weeds are wrapped around my head. Just think about that. He got seaweed and junk from the fish's belly uh, all, all wrapped around his head. He said, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. In other words, the very base of the mountains, down to the bottoms of the deep. Uh, uh, he said, you, brought, you have brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord. He's still in the belly of the fish when he's praying this. He said, when my soul fainted, I remembered you were the Lord. My prayer went up into your holy temple. Verse 8 says, uh, he said, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. In other words, if you keep worshiping at the altar of self, it's not that God won't give you mercy. You're forsaking the mercy of God. You're running away from God's mercy. He said, those who worship idols, they forsake, they turn their back on the mercy of God. But not me. I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Salvation is of the Lord. Think about this. He is praying this prayer, celebrating salvation of the Lord. From where? From where? Yeah, the belly of the fish. Now, had God told him that he was going to get out yet? Did he know that he was going to get out? He had no idea if he was ever going to get out. Consider this. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And he is praying and praising God and thanking God for salvation. Why is he thanking God for salvation? Because he found salvation before the ship, uh, before the, the fish, excuse me, ever vomited him up. This is not a petition for future salvation. He's thanking God for saving him from the deep. The last verse of chapter one ends with the fish. It ends with him being cast overboard. And, and the first verse of chapter 2 says, I called out and the Lord heard me. It makes me wonder if there's not something that happened in between the last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2 where Jonah is sinking. He said, I sank to the depths of the sea. And somehow Jonah cries out to God and God hears him and sends a whale on a rescue mission to swallow him up. I'm telling you that whenever you cry out to God, when you're willing to humble yourself and call out to him. He will answer your prayer. He may not answer it like you want it, but the whale was an answer to prayer. The whale was ugly, dirty, full of seaweed and goo and gunk and messy, but the whale was an answer to prayer. It kept him from drowning. Jonah's prayer contains four characteristics, if you're taking notes, four characteristics 
that are consistent with any true prayer. Four characteristics that are consistent with any true prayer. For all the note takers, number one is honesty. Jonah, Jonah not only acknowledged that he was miserable, not only acknowledged he was in misery, misery, but he acknowledged that it was God who caused it. He said, Lord, I know you are putting this pain in my life because of the dumb things I did. Too many times Christians are dishonest in our prayers. We come to the Lord looking for relief, but we overlook some glaring issue in our life. We overlook some glaring circumstance that maybe God has sent or maybe our foolish decisions have created. And we pray and pound the altar and say, oh God, oh God, oh God. Sometimes we're guilty of not praying in honesty. Taking a good look in the mirror and realizing that sometimes we are in a mess of our own making. Maybe I've ignored some. I'm, a, I'm, ignore, I'm asking God for relief, but I'm ignoring some sin. You may ignore your sin. I may ignore my sin. God will not ignore my sin. There is nowhere in Scripture that you can prove that God will ignore sin. He doesn't do it. He simply doesn't. So I can pray for relief all I want, but if I still willfully go on in sin, or if I still willfully go on in disobedience, or I still willfully go on in pride, I'm in a mess of my own making. I am responsible for what happens. Honesty. Don't hide it. Be honest. Go before the Lord. Talk to him. We don't have a, a, a place where you confess everything to uh, a minister or a, a confessional booth to a priest here in this church. We believe that your confession is made to God. Tell God about it. Get honest with yourself. It might be good to get honest and transparent with some of the people close to you. Maybe your spouse or maybe your parent or, 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 or somebody that's close in your life. Be honest. Honest is a characteristic of true repentance and true prayer. Penance is another characteristic of true prayer. Jonah's prayer was characterized by, by penance. Penance means confession or this idea of self-abasement or godly sorrow. He, he understands that he, he has done wrong and he's sorrowful. Can I tell you, it's possible to be honest about your situation but not be repentant. It's possible to say, yeah, I messed up, but I'm not sorry for it. Penance is, is, is repentance. It says, yeah, I messed up, and I'm sorry. Penance doesn't justify itself. It doesn't say, yeah, I did what I did, but I'm not sorry for it. That's not godly sorrow. And then thanksgiving is an element of true prayer. Jonah was, was not just thankful that, he wasn't thankful that God had delivered him from the fish, because where is he praying the prayer again? From the fish, the belly of the whale. So he's not thankful that God, I've heard this read before, like he's thankful God got him out of the fish. He's in the fish when he's praying the prayer. He doesn't know he's getting out. What's he, what is he thankful for? He's thankful that he came to his senses and humbled himself and repented. He's thankful that God turned his heart from rebellion running to Tarshish, and God turned his heart to say, God, I want to run to you. Note to self, God doesn't have to change my situation for me to be thankful. God doesn't have to change my surroundings for me to be thankful. I can be thankful because of what God does on the inside of me. 
And then finally, he sacrifices and vows. Vows. Jonah is ready to. He, he's ready to to fall down and and die. But now he's sacrificing and making vows. He's taking his his place. He realizes, as a child of God, that he is a sinful human being. That he must make sacrifice and he must receive the grace of God in his life. And every one of us must receive the grace of God in our life. And he ends his prayer in that book by, with Jehovah Savior. Uh, literally in the New Testament it would be in Jesus' name. He's, he ends his prayer and the last verse of that text that the Lord says the fish vomited him out upon dry land. Imagine being in a big pile of fish vomit. <laughs> Yummy. Disgusting. Hey, sometimes deliverance isn't pretty. <laughs> but thank God for deliverance. Thank God that he's a delivering God. Chapter 3. Chapter 2 was Jonah praying. Chapter 3 is Jonah preaching. Now Jonah's preaching to the city of Nineveh. This records one of the greatest revivals in history. Everybody from the smallest to the greatest in Nineveh repents. The Bible records that there is 120,000 children in Nineveh. Chapter 4 verse 11 refers to them as persons who could not discern between their right hand and their left hand. A reference scholars concur to children. People who couldn't... Determined. So by 120,000 children, the estimates would be somewhere between 600,000 and a million residents inside the city of Nineveh, potentially. Now, let's look at this great revival that happens. Chapter 3, verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah The second time. Aren't you thankful for the second time? Aren't you thankful that he comes again? Aren't you thankful that when you mess up the first time, or the second time, or the third time, that God comes again? What do you and I do with a rebellious man or rebellious woman? You know, if we were to say, Jonah, go home, okay? You're, you're saved. Glad you repented, uh, but you're, you're finished uh, just go back home and, and, and get back out of my sight. But that's not God's way. That's not God's way. God does not stoop to human levels of retribution or revenge. And aren't you thankful for that? But God gives grace and mercy. He gives grace and mercy to those who repent and those who call out upon his name if he didn't give mercy none of us could serve him as holy as you think you might be there's not one person in this room right now that could serve Jesus Christ if it wasn't for his grace and his mercy in your life none of us are good enough none of us are righteous enough none of us are pure enough 
A quick look at scripture, we find that even after Abraham stopped in Haran, after being told by God to keep going, God gets up later and he says, leave your country and go to that place and I'll make you a great nation. Even after Moses slays an Egyptian out of his anger and lives in exile for 40 years, God finally says to him one day, if he's willing to repent, take your shoes off, get up and go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Peter, after he denies Jesus three times, God says, Peter, if you'll reaffirm your love, to me. If you'll reaffirm yourself to me, I'm calling you to be the preacher of Pentecost. Why? Because the Lord gives all of his kids a second chance. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for second chances. Like Abraham, all of us have stopped short sometimes of where God was calling us to. Like Moses, all of us have sometimes have acted in rage or anger. Have we taken matters into our own hands and made our own plans rather than letting God work the situation out? But God gave us a second chance. Like Peter, every one of us have in our own form or fashion denied the Lord in our lives at times or or been quiet when we should have spoken up for him. Does he cast us off? Does he disown us? Does he say you're not mine anymore? No. Does he turn a blind eye to our disobedience? He doesn't do that either. Does he just wink at us and say, oh, that's all right. I know you're just kidding. Oh, you know, you had a really good idea. I guess I'll do it your way. No. Repentance is the trigger for the mercy of God. Repentance uh, is the trigger, it's the switch uh, that activates the mercy of God in our life. It's what qualifies you for receiving the mercy and the grace of God. And so when we bring ourselves to repentance, you know what God does out of our repentance? Uh, He repurposes us. Uh, He recommissions us. Maybe he recommissions us to our original calling. Or maybe he repurposes us into something different or something new. But when we repent, here's what you need to know. It's never wasted, and our life is never wasted. I'm telling, I'm telling somebody here tonight that if there is breath in your body, it's not too late to repent. If there is breath in your body, it is not too late to do the right thing. If there is breath in your body, it's not too late to change your mind and do the right thing. Verse 2 God says, arise and go to the city of Nineveh with the message that I'm going to tell you. we got to preach what only the Lord tells us to preach. we got to say what only the Lord tells us to say. Jonah goes to this city, and he gives this sermon. It's not an inspiring sermon. There were no funny stories. There were no dad jokes. He just preaches this angry sermon. 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. He just goes around town screaming it. I mean, that'd be like walking out across the Quad Cities. Let's take a marathon across the Quad Cities and just shout at the top of our lungs with a big sanctuary. No, don't do this. Don't do this. If you do this, use some other church's sign, okay? (laughs) With a big church sign that says, 40 days and you're all going to hell. That's his message. How inspiring. But that message produced a revival of hundreds of thousands of people. Eight-word sermon. I wish I could preach an eight-word sermon that would produce that kind of revival. But I really don't want to go through the belly of the fish first, so there we go. 
This conversion is in four steps. The conversion of the city is in four steps for you note takers. Thank you for those of you that, that are diligent and, and, and writing in your Bible or taking notes in your notepads or wherever. Conversion in four steps. First is preaching and hearing. Jonah preached what God gave him and they heard it. you got to preach the word and somebody's got to hear the word. The second step is there was belief. As soon as they heard, they responded to the words of Jonah. They responded to the words of the preacher. And we've got to respond to the word. The third is action. Action. The city took action on its faith by proclaiming a fast and by putting on sackcloth and ashes or clothes of mourning and and you got to understand, there's, there's no true belief without action. Everywhere in the New Testament that the word believe is used, it's coupled with action or activity. You cannot believe without action. Even in Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of faith, we're told that Abel believed and offered God a proper sacrifice, that Enoch believed and walked with God, that Noah believed and built an ark, that Abraham believed and obeyed and went out of his home to a new land. Isaac believed and blessed Jacob. Moses refused to be known as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, but chose because of his belief system to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. What I'm telling you is, is that belief and action in the Bible are inseparable. You cannot believe without the associated action or activity. So he believes in the fourth step of this whole conversion experience is that they turn from sin. Verse 8 of chapter 3 says, let everyone turn from his evil way. They all turned from their evil way. Repentance is not just coming down front in a service and crying until you feel better. Repentance is saying, I'm going to do it different. I am turning from my sin. Repentance, according to Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. Watch what they did. Verse 6, and the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from what? And laid aside what? If you're going to repent, you got to get off the throne of your life. If you're going to repent, I've got I've to take off the throne mentality. I've got to take off the royalty mentality in my life that I am the king of my own castle, that I call my own shots. I don't answer to no. I do what I want to do. If you're going to repent, you've got to get off the throne of your life and you've got to allow Jesus Christ to be placed on the throne of your life. That's what repentance does. Repentance gets my self-will off the throne. It gets my way off the throne. It gets my concepts and ideas off the throne. And it puts his word and his will and his way for my life back on the throne. So the last chapter that we close with is, if chapter 2 is Jonah praying, chapter 3 is Jonah preaching, chapter 4 is Jonah pouting. <laughs> He's throwing a temper tantrum. He's back to the old Jonah. <laughs> Real quick. Jonah was angry. Jonah's hot. Jonah's, anybody ever been mad before? Don't lie. <laughs> anybody ever been mad before? Let me see your hands. <laughs> yeah. The rest of you will be doing a series on lying next month. You can come back for that one. No, just kidding. Jonah was mad. They're having this great revival. Jonah's not working the altars. Jonah's not rejoicing. Jonah's not clapping his hands with the worship team. He's mad. <laughs> That's where he should have been. 
was rejoicing with all of them. Instead, he climbs a mountain, starts a fire. I don't know, I guess he's ready to roast some marshmallows and watch the fireworks as God zaps the city of Nineveh. Get them, God, every last one of them. (laughs) The nature of God, this is what's crazy. The nature of God's mercy is what made Jonah mad, in essence. He was mad that God was going to forgive them. He was mad that after they had been so stubborn, prideful, and sinful, that God was still going to give them mercy and another chance. That just ticked him off. And and here's, here's Jonah's greatest sin, in my opinion. Jonah's greatest sin is that he thought the mercy of God was only for people like him. He thought the mercy of God was only for people who fit his mold. They're not Israelites. They don't keep the vows I keep. But God forbid that God would give mercy to a bunch of repentant Assyrian Ninevites who cry out to him and say, Lord, we need your mercy. He didn't think they deserved it. So Jonah's having his pout session sitting on the mountainside and God prepares a plant that grows up out of the ground. This plant grows up and Jonah's, ah, plant, shade. And then the same God that sends the plant sends a worm to eat the plant up and destroy it and it wilts and it dies. Ah! The same God that builds the plant, grows the plant, the same God that can send the worm. And Jonah gets mad again. Jonah had a temper problem. Jonah had a little anger issue. Jonah needed to be in some repentance and some anger management classes. Jonah gets mad, and God calls him out in verse number four. He says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry with me? That's not what he said. He said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He wasn't, God wasn't mad because Jonah was angry at God. God was mad because Jonah was just angry. In in modern English, I can hear God saying, Jonah, you're a very angry person. (laughs) Settle down, Jonah. Jonah needs to chill. He's mad. He's angry. And then when God... First, he's angry in verse 4. He's angry at the city that gets spared. God doesn't zap the city with hellfire and brimstone. And then in verse 9, God challenges anger again and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry at the plant? Is it right for you to be angry because I cursed the plant? First, he's mad about the city. Then he's mad. People who have anger problems, they just get angry. One day it's about the city that's spared. And the next day, it's about the plant. And the next day, it's about the worm. The problem with Jonah is not the city, not the plant, not the worm. The problem with Jonah is Jonah needs to drag that heart back to an altar that he found in the belly of a fish and say, God, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I'm prideful. I'm angry. Forgive me. (laughs) Jonah is sitting there and God's interrogating him. And God says, what does it profit you to be angry? What 
good comes out of your anger. I'm telling you tonight that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought not live an angry life. There is no good that is going to be produced out of your anger. Don't go around your days anger. There's enough in this world to be angry at 24-7. Just turn on the news. Just look at what people are posting on social media. I mean, there's a... Don't let yourself live angry. God says, is it right for you to be angry? What profit does it do for you? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant even to death? Jonah was so embittered he couldn't even see straight. He defended his anger. And God's pointing out to him, that anger is going to be the death of you. I'm preaching to somebody here tonight. I'm teaching to somebody here tonight. God's a God of second chances. God is a God that will give you not just second chances. God's a God of 999th chances. God's a God that as long as there's breath in your body, it's not too late to get it right. It's not too late to make it right. The whole purpose and plan of God is encapsulated in the last two verses of the book. Last two verses of chapter 4. But the Lord said, you had pity on a plant, but you didn't labor for that plant. You didn't make it grow. It came up at night and it perished at night. In other words, you got mad about something that you had no control over whatsoever. Think about this with me. What are the things you got mad about today? What are the things you got mad about this week? What did you hear on the news that triggered your anger? What did you see in the newspaper that triggered your mad reaction? What did you read on social media that made you mad? God says, Jonah, you get mad about something that you don't have any control over. But then why should I not? If your, your emotions are solicited about something you didn't have anything to do with, then why should I not have pity on Nineveh, this great city, which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern from their left hand, from their right, or children, people who don't have discernment, they can't discern, and much livestock. What is God saying? God's saying, I love the Ninevites, and I love the cows, and I love you too, Jonah. I love you too. I don't just love the Ninevites, but my love is for you. Why can't you see that I have given my mercy to whosoever will. I've given my mercy to anybody that'll cry out for it. And I rise to tell this congregation tonight that the mercy of God is available to absolutely anybody. The Ninevites were doing the most deplorable things, living the most wicked and perverted lives. But as you stand together with me tonight in closing, I want you to know that the mercy of God is even for the most deplorable people in our world even for the most wicked and evil people in our world. The mercy of God is available. But what we have to understand is it's repentance that triggers and activates His mercy. The mercy of God is available for you tonight. But the mercy of God doesn't just come because you sit in the right church service. And it doesn't just come because you shake a preacher's hand or you sign up on a membership role of a church. The mercy of God is activated in your life through repentance. It's activated in your life 
through calling out to him. Would you lift up your voice together with me and would you call out to him? Would you lift up your voice together with me in closing and would you just call upon the Lord and ask him to cover you with his mercy tonight. Somebody just talk to him for a moment. Somebody just lift up your voice and say, Jesus, I need your mercy. God, I need your mercy in my life. I need your mercy every day. Come on, somebody pray for the mercy of God in your life. Maybe you want to pray that the mercy of God would be seen in someone you love. Maybe you want to pray the mercy of God in, in, in a family member. Somebody just lift up your voice uh, as we prepare to close here. and Just begin to call upon the mercy of God for just a moment. God, I need your mercy. God, we need your mercy. Oh, God, don't let us be so prideful and don't let us be so willful. God, don't let us be so self-serving and self-centered. God, that we reject your pull and we reject your mercy and we reject the, the voice of the Jonah, the preacher in our life, and we reject the voice of God, even your word to us as a child of God like Jonah. God, I pray that we would be open and receptive to your mercy. God, I pray that we would hunger and desire after your mercy. Oh, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, oh God. We thank you, oh God. We thank you, oh God, for your mercy. God, we need your mercy. God, we need your mercy in our life every day. God, we're nothing. Yeah, we're nothing without your mercy. God, I'm nothing without your mercy. God, I'm nothing without your forgiveness. God, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your mercy. God, I need your mercy every day in my life, God. And I pray that you not cut us off. I pray that you not do away with us. I pray that you not cast us out. But God, you let us be recipients of your mercy. God, let us receive your mercy new every morning. Every morning, every morning. Oh, somebody just worship him and entertain his presence for a moment. His mercies are new every morning, the Bible says. He adds no sorrow to it. If you'll repent and reach out to him, he doesn't want to add any sorrow to your life. He wants to compound mercy. He wants to compound mercy on your life. Oh, I thank you, Lord, for your presence that's here right now. Such a beautiful presence of the Lord right now. One more time, let's just thank him in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. God, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for your power. I thank you for your goodness. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. His presence is in this place. And if this is an atmosphere and environment that is unfamiliar to you, uh, we'd love to let you know more about what the Bible has to say that His mercy can do in your life. If you'd like to know more about what you feel, you can see any one of our ministry leaders, any one of our pastoral team. You can catch one of us up here at the conclusion of the service. Talk to one of our ushers as you exit the service here tonight. We'd love to get you in a home Bible study. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to answer any of your questions that you have about what you feel, about the presence of God, about the Holy Ghost, about this church. We are a church, the Sanctuary Quad Cities is a church that is reaching across this entire Quad City region. We are leading people in Jesus' name to know Jesus personally. We want people to know Jesus for themselves, to, to grow in Jesus purposefully. We don't want you just to know him, but we want you to start moving forward in your growth. And then we want you to be able to show Jesus passionately to the world around you. 
Praise God. We love him. So good again to see all of our guests that are here tonight. Thank you for being with us, whether you're online.